This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So Tesla shares uh, trading slightly higher today on news that it's planning to build a giant assembly plant in China. Let's get a little bit more on this story. Our Tesla watcher, Dana Hull, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. You know, another week, and I feel like there's always some news having to do with some form of Elon Musk's universe. Um, this time around, it's a huge Chinese plant. What do we know about it, Dana? Well, interestingly, we don't really know that much. Today, uh, there was a memorandum of understanding signed between Tesla and the government in Shanghai uh, that there will be a a combined auto assembly and battery plant that will ultimately make 500,000 cars. But Tesla is pretty clear that they're going to need to get a lot of permits first. Uh, They're not expecting to really begin manufacturing for at least two years. And the big question mark is, who's going to pay for this? And how much money does Tesla need to actually get this up and running? Does uh, Dana, does... Elon Musk realized we might be in the midst of a U.S.-China trade war, and this could complicate things? <laughs> I know. Well, the, I mean, the geopolitics are, are fascinating around right? this. I mean, to be, to be clear, Tesla has been searching for a facility in China for quite some time, and these negotiations have been kind of on again, off again for several months, if not years. So the, the fact that they're sort of announcing it now, is it's not that surprising. But yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on with tariffs on imports, with saber-rattling between China and President Trump, um, you know, China is obviously the world's largest auto market. So mm-hmm. if you want to be a global automaker, you need to have customers in that market. Um, typically, there's a local JV, but it sounds like this plant is something that Tesla will run on its own. But I'm not clear who is investing in this plant, how much the plant is expected to cost, and what is Panasonic's role? I mean, Panasonic right. has been Tesla's uh, partner on both the battery factory in Nevada as well as the solar plant in Buffalo, New York. So is Pan- does Panasonic have a role here or not? Well, it's interesting too, right? And we know that over the past few decades, any company that really wanted to do business uh, in China domestically, they had to do it as a joint venture with China. And this as you said, we're, we're finding out details. We don't know. Will this be wholly owned by Tesla? Will they have a partner? We don't know. It sounds like it's whole. It sounds like it's wholly owned because okay. they didn't announce a JV. They didn't. An, they didn't yeah. announce a big JV. But what are the rules by which? They have to. I, I don't understand what the rules. What the rules now mean? Do that, does that mean that Tesla has to fully fund it itself? Yeah. Um, and it's going to have a big price tag. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting timing. All right. You know the big Tesla picture here, or a big story. So tell me about how this fits in and how it might help or hurt the company. I mean, they've got what about ten billion dollars worth of debt. We know that they're one of the most shorted stocks right now because investors are kind of getting frustrated that Elon isn't meeting kind of all these projections that he keeps putting out for the Model 3 here in the United States. How will what they're doing in China potentially help or hurt them? 
Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, Musk has said repeatedly this year that they do not need they do not want to raise additional capital. But if they're going to build a second assembly plant in China, they're going to need more money and they're not going to get there just on the Model 3 alone unless they have like a blowout quarter or two. So my expectation is that you're now going to start hearing a lot more talk about how is Tesla going to raise capital. And, you know, and the other thing to note is that, you know, one of the big investors in Tesla is Tencent, which is a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Are they going to possibly up their equity? stake or you know who, who are the investors that are that are that are really intri- intrigued by this because um, Tesla's definitely going to need money to fund this and I think that's the most surprising thing about the MOU that we heard about today was that it just didn't have any details on financing China we know has deep pockets <laughs> right it's true yep. <laughs> you know yeah I'm kind of fascinated to figure out you know that this this is happening at a time when we know China has put out this Made in China 2025. Right, they are looking to move, forge ahead, um, and be, and stop being such a manufacturing country and becoming a technology country. And you know whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's self-driving cars, whether it's EVs. Uh, so I do. I'm really curious to find out, you know, what they might be doing alongside Tesla rather than just letting Tesla in to kind of do its own thing. Right. That, that, that's my interest, too. I mean, typically, American companies are a little wary about, yeah. you know, they have IP, about IP mm-hmm. being stolen. Um, and But China is moving, you know, very fast on electric vehicles, and, and the central government is, is very active on that front. Um, you know, there's electric buses all over China. There's a lot of domestic electric vehicle mayor, makers. So it's just really interesting to me that they're kind of opening the door for Tesla to come in. But it sounds like this would be a wholly owned plant, at least if I'm reading reading the release yeah. right and understanding that sometimes the translation is not super right. accurate and I might be missing some nuance. I wish I would love to be a fly on the wall for all these <laughs> negotiations. What's interesting, too, in your story, you talk about and you remind us again, you know, even how important China is to a company like Tesla accounted for. China accounted for 70 percent of Tesla's 2017 revenue, uh, according to a filing with U.S. regulators. And they sold almost 15,000 vehicles in China last year. I mean, the Tesla brand... Chinese consumers like it. They do. I mean, they very they, and, and Chinese consumers are very brand conscious. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of Tesla stores in China are located cl- close to Apple stores. Um, you know, the, the the Model X. One of the big features is that it has this HEPA and HVAC filter, so the air quality within the cabin is supposed to be far better than the air outside. That's been a big selling point in China. Um, but I think the other thing that's just really interesting is you know. The appetite for cars in China has been pretty high. I believe the country sold something like 21 million vehicles last year. Is that sustainable, or is everyone switching to electric scooters? Um, and you know, yeah. obviously for Tesla, it's far cheaper to make cars there than to ship them from California. But who's going to be tapped with sort of really running this plant on a day-to-day basis? God, so many questions. What would be the number one question you'd if you if Elon Musk had said, "Hey, Dad, let's go get a beer," <laughs> what would you ask him just quickly? Uh, what is Panasonic's role in okay. your Chinese plan? All right. And hopefully we'll get more details because there's certainly a fair amount of questions. Dana, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Dana Hall, she's our technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco, writes about Tesla a lot. Check her out on Twitter at Dana Hall. Let me just get a quick check on Tesla shares. I did see them higher before we started our broadcast. Stock's up about eight-tenths of a percent. Was up, up as much as 2.9% today, but now just about an eight-tenth of a percent gain. The stock at three. $321.09 a share. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg. Yeah, we all got work to do, and one.
But a lot of companies and employees are realizing that you can actually share that workspace. PricewaterhouseCoopers, by the way, estimates the sharing economy. It includes everything, car and room sharing, crowdfunding, all that stuff, will reach $335 billion by 2025. One company that's part of this, Convene, it's a real estate startup specializing in flexible meeting and working space. Here to talk about what they're doing. Get an update is Ryan Simonetti. He's back with us. He's co-founder and CEO at the San Francisco-based Convene. But you live in New York. Yeah, New York-based Convene. Yeah, I don't know where I had San Francisco. Maybe just because we hear startup and we think San Francisco. And then automatically we're in the valley, yeah. <laughs> well, where are you doing the most work? You know, our biggest presence um, is still in New York where it the is. company was founded. Uh, you know, Of the 19 locations that we have, you know, 12 are here. Yeah. Um, but we have expanded uh, to now be in five cities. That's great. Uh, How do you choose to... those cities? Is it just big major cities where there's a lot going on? Well, you know, I think everything really starts with our core customer. And we actually have two. Um, you know, I think what makes our platform really interesting um, – you know, is is really the way that we think about partnering, not just with our corporate clients who are actually looking to outsource their meeting experience or their workplace yeah. experiences to us, but really alar- aligning ourselves with the building owner to help them reposition the building to focus on the workplace experience. And so when we're looking at markets, we're looking at not just where are our corporate clients, but where are our landlord partners that we can also work with to create these experiences? It's not just taking over the space, using it for a little bit, and then getting out. I mean, you really are involved. Yeah, we're very involved. Yeah. Um, you know, both uh, in the physical design of the space, um, the curation of the experience. Um, you know, obviously, you know, one of the things that makes us unique is our hospitality platform. Right. Uh, and really working strategically with the property owner to kind of reimagine the workplace experience in a class A office building. It's interesting too, because you guys, right. It's not just about providing workspace, but you will create things that the client wants or the customer wants, right? It might be, I don't know, some kind of special yeah, event. From an, or- yeah, from an event perspective, um, you know, uh, the amenity uh, experiences that you know, we create that are not just for the benefit of convenience customers, but right. all of the tenants in the office building. Um, but, you know, the core of the business is really around, you know, how do we create a truly differentiated meeting and workplace experience where companies can actually outsource that to us as opposed to insourcing. And that really gets back to the principles of the sharing economy. Um, you know, what's really fascinating right now, um, your real estate for the first time is really being truly disrupted. Uh, and the way that companies consume real estate is changing. And I think this concept of a company signing a 10-year lease, yeah. I think is probably coming to an end. Uh, and companies like us are really stepping in to fill that void to offer them a fully turnkey experience where everything is taken care of so that they can focus on what's most important, which is their business right. and their people and their talent. Right. And I think I asked you about this last time because I'm always curious about visibility that you have as a business owner. Um, when somebody signs up to do something with you, is it six months? Is it a year? Is it several years? So for our meetings business, it can be as short as an hour to right. multi-day, right? right? Um, but for our workplace offering, um, you know, we have uh, you know, contracts that start at 12 months yeah. uh, for as long as 36 months. Is and- that a bigger part? your business, the workplace offerings? Um, it's becoming a bigger part of our business, um, you know, but we're not a co-working company. We're much more than that. You know, we really view ourselves as thinking about the workplace experience as an ecosystem and how what are the physical spaces that create a magical experience and what are the services ultimately that need to be deployed there to, to bring that to life? So client A comes to you and says, I need some space for the next two years and here's what I want and you rework it. With the landlord or what? How does it work? Uh, so you know, in, in our environments, you know, we've We've built a product which we think solves the need of the customer. You've already done it. We've we've done a lot of research. Our design teams have done a ton of homework. We understand the needs of the organization that's coming to us. And the customization is really 
optimizing the physical space that they're taking to speak truly to their business needs and requirements. So I would say it's 80% already there. And the customization is that last 20% to make it feel truly unique for that specific customer. And you guys, I mean, there's other companies out in the space. There's WeWork, there's a few others, um, Industrious and so on. Uh, You guys, though, have a lot of well-known clients, right? Household names. We do. We have, you obviously, you have 50% of our revenue um, comes from enterprise companies with over a billion in revenue. Uh, a big part of that being made up of the Fortune 500. Mm. Um, you, we really built the foundation of the business since the day we started nine years ago on really understanding the needs of enterprise, starting with meeting and hospitality and now migrating into workspace as the industry's evolved. Uh, and we really think that that differentiates us from from any of the companies uh, that you just mentioned. Any signs of a slowdown? I think we're all trying to figure out where we are in the economic cycle. Any signs that companies – I mean, I don't know how you would gauge it. I wonder if companies would use more of you to kind of get stuff off of their Plate, and that might be a sign that they're. So we just we actually just talked about this on the TV segment because they're talking about Brexit and yeah. uncertainty. What's interesting is if you think about times of uncertainty, you would actually make an argument that for something like real estate, which is your second or third largest expense, which you're asking to be committed to five or ten years, that times of uncertainty you'd rather outsource, right? Uh, and we actually saw that when we started the company in, in 2009 and 2010, which wasn't great economic times here. Um, so we actually think times of uncertainty actually are a catalyst to more outsourcing, which strategically benefits us. Does that mean you're doing more business? That's what uh, I'm trying to We're find doing out. a lot of business. Um, you know, interesting about hospitality, though, because there's a part of our business, especially with meetings. Um, you know, hospitality is typically a leader in and a leader out. Uh, and we just haven't seen any slowdown uh, whatsoever mm-hmm. yet. Um, our companies continue to use us not just for workspace but meeting space as well. I think I asked you last time we're going to go public. Uh, you know, look, the plan right now is to continue to execute our plan. Um, we've raised obviously a lot of capital. Got uh, it. If it makes sense from a financing perspective, at some point, we'll be open to exploring. Ryan Simonetti of Convene, thank you so much. They had a good time. The end of June marked the latest Titans dinner. Steve Kroll is the master of ceremonies. He's also managing director at Mona's Crispy Heart and Company. Back with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio at the 27th dinner. No, no, June 27th. Was June 27th. But how yes, many we have had, you guys had? Well, seven years, eight years, and about 10 a year. So this is about 80. 80. Yeah, we're going to wow. celebrate our 100th in uh, probably uh, another year or so. But uh, this was really one of the, I would say, top or top two dinners. We had it uh, at Valcluse because Le Cirque is closed, but the honor uh, honoree was Ken Langone. And for the uh, people listening, he uh, wrote a book called I Love Capitalism. And we gave out the book to all 20 people and then another 15 uh, clients wanted the book also. Ken Langone, of course, of Home Ken Depot. Ken Langone of Home and- Depot. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. But uh, he, uh, you know, the, the reason he wrote the book is that if you do the right thing in life and are honest and work hard. Making money is not bad, and that's why he wrote the book, uh, I Love Capitalism, and talks about he started with relatively little and uh, ends up having a lot, a right, lot. Right, And uh, as I said in the uh, to my opening speech, uh, the first couple of chapters are, you know, kind of like uh, me and you, Carol, but uh, in the fifth <laughs> chapter, he turns to the right, and uh, we turn to the left, and we shop at Home Depot, and he owns it, and he gives away billions, and we're trying to make, you know, a dollar a day. But uh, he was truly, truly amazing, and uh, 
So he started off and he spoke for about 10 minutes. And then we had uh, the Titans uh, talk. And there were a couple of very interesting um, comments by several people. I remind everybody, the Titans, you mean, these are guys who are managing what? Billions well, usually, of dollars. We've done it. We've had anywhere from five trillion to seven trillion dollars where of the companies that are represented uh, come. Right. Obviously, some of that is fixed income, but uh, most of them are equity players. So they try and give their best equity idea. Very rarely do we get shorts because these are institutions rather mm-hmm. than hedge funds. Occasionally, we get a we get a short idea. Uh, Tony Despirito, uh, head of uh, mutual funds at BlackRock. Had a very interesting uh, idea on the MLPs, which are down a lot this year. The Master Limited Partnership. The Master Limited Partnership, yeah. and particularly in the energy area. And he yeah. gave the, the whole group, I won't go into individual names, but please check your your, your MLPs on energy. And, and his thought process was that energy is much better now. Uh, and secondly, well, the pl- certainly the price of oil has price of oil is going. Yeah. Natural gas hasn't, but it will. Yeah. Um, but the other part is that everyone's so scared of uh, interest rates going up a lot uh, that it's not happening. I mean, the ten years at two eighty six, uh, and and I think the reason is that people are realizing that rates in every other country are higher than our rates. I mean, to, ha- to have Italy and Spain and some of these other countries higher 10-year rates than us is pretty amazing. It yeah. really is. Yeah. And uh, also, there's some problems over there. And I think with the tariffs, um, you know, you're having um, a, a modest flattening of, uh, of what I call momentum in the economy. Um, I've noticed... Uh, We're not coming undone, but it's not, not as strong coming as undone at all. No, thought. the economy yeah. in the U.S. is good, but I think after your tax cuts... And whatever it is, you would have thought that investment spending would come on uh, or capital spending would come on quicker. I've talked to three or four people in companies from fishing industry, farming, uh, autos, and I can't remember the last one. And everyone says that things are stuck, just stuck, steel industry particularly, that no one wants to bid on a project because they don't know what the price is. So if they normally make a margin of 20 percent. When they look at the new tariffs, they don't know if they're a margin of minus two right, what or, are we or 15 with? or what are we dealing with. So everybody, mm-hmm. even the consumer and, and, and the the, uh, the construction people are saying, you know what, let's just hold off. So you're getting this, you know, and, and you, you see it in the Atlanta Fed numbers. They come down from 4.5 to 3.8. Now I hear down to 3.5. And that's just, I think, typical when you have confusion. If, if President Trump would probably tweet less and continue to do – the good parts of what he's doing, you know, traveling and meeting other people, I think that would be good. And, and lay off the, the tariffs. The tariffs, I think everyone there thought tariffs, we should attack the tariff issue, but we don't have to do it in a public court. And, uh, you know, that's right. that's it. Other names that came out uh, were the airlines, which are down and out. The airlines seem to always come up among they, your They group. do come up because we tend to be more of a value. Yeah. Uh, we're no more on Thursday when Delta reports, but I think they're very, very cheap. Yeah, Delta's down about 10%. They've been beating yeah, up a little yeah. bit. Uh, yeah. But they're still, you know, for yeah. the year, the market's, you know, up a little bit and they're yeah. down. Housing stocks uh, came up again. Um, Lenar is, I think, th- at least three times. Three on this times list. it came up, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, we've had on here toll, and you know, yeah. Doug Yearly, and right. it's, I think it, in the case of housing, it's the same thing uh, all the way through. Just it probably no, Lenar 
since they bought Cal Atlantic, has yeah. a little bit more leverage. General Motors came up, and they were comparing it to Tesla. The person saw, thought Tesla was overpriced. General Motors is underpriced. Uh, that's a, It's a great debate, and uh, I happen to agree with the General Motors call, but, uh, you know, each person uh, on their own. Well, we love to do it that Tesla's a $54 billion market cap. General Motors is a $56 billion market cap with, let me just look at their revenues, about $146 billion in revenues for this year. If you take a look at... Tesla revenues, we're looking at maybe 20 this year. Correct. It's just and, amazing, and, and like the numbers. Today, yeah. uh, they talked about making Teslas in China. Right. It's going to cost them $30,000 more. Uh, General Motors this year has some serious free cash flow, and Tesla is obviously r- running negative. But uh, the point of the story is that most people were reasonably bullish on the U.S. market, much more worried about the emerging markets for obvious reasons, which, what's going on. And enough. it's just yeah. people can't figure that out. But um, if if the trade wars and the and the talk and North Korea all calm down, markets okay. Uh, maybe a little bit overpriced, but it's okay. It's not not uh, even with a little moderate slowdown in the economy. Anybody talking recession? No, but they're worried that uh, if going back, if the trade yeah, things yeah. get get crazy, that's protectionism, and that it's eerie to think about. You know, twenty nine and thirty when we had the same type right. of situation: protectionism, tariff wars, peak of a cycle. You know, you could get into that, but you're not seeing it. The bond markets telling you we're having a moderation, not a you know, not a recession. Now, there's one thing that jumped out on my list. Um, was this Tony um, Lobier? Yeah, Tony Lobier. Cautious, cautious. Cash. He says cash is king right now. Um, since he had this call, uh, it was not only this uh, time and the time before, he's been technically correct because the market's down yeah. about 2 or 3%. He's a, he's a gold bull, um, and he's a pretty good investor. I just, um, I, you know, in this environment, I think most people would disagree in the sense that they think that, um, you know, the energy stocks have been on fire. So you can make money in certain industries. Unfortunately, airlines have gone down, but the energy stocks have gone up. So that's, uh, that's, I think, what most people were were playing uh, in in the dinner. And I saw just quickly 20 seconds. I see a little bit of tech, Facebook. I see Apple. Uh, Everyone, you know, Apple, Facebook, uh, they keep coming up, but People have mentioned him so much, and some of those names are very extended. But, uh, you know, this is since we do this once a, once a month, right. it's what you like right now. Nice to check in with you. Thank you, my dear. Are we going to be doing this in August? Uh, or no, you take no. A break? we have, we have yeah. August off. They, everyone's off at, at the, the beach. The, they're all at the beach. I'm <laughs> working, you and I are working, they're at the beach. Steve Kroll of Mona's Crispy Heart. This is Bloomberg. All right, everybody. I want to bring in our John Ehrlichman. He's anchor of BNN, Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. And he's been writing and reporting about gender equality, which we know has been getting an awful lot of attention globally. Uh, John joins us uh, from Toronto. John, great to have you back with us. I do feel like this is such a timely topic because we keep uh, hearing about the lack of diversity, certainly on a lot of different levels, but men and women specifically when it comes to senior positions at companies and certainly in the C-suite. And you've been working on that, too. We have. I mean, it's it's an important story globally right now, and this was an important year for the subject of gender equality. As you know, at the recent G7 meeting, Carol, we saw leaders from G7 countries meeting, and while a lot of the focus was on trade squabbles, at least in the headlines, what those leaders talked about at a high level was the need for um, 
gender quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, more more progress made on that front. Um, as as some listeners know, um, that topic has been important to the prime minister here in Canada, Justin Trudeau, uh, who has uh, made it a priority with his own cabinet. Uh, our foreign affairs minister, who's in the center of all these trade conversations right now, Christian Freeland, just took uh, the foreign policy magazine Diplomat of the Year award. Um, so there's a lot of healthy dialogue and movement at the government level. But when you look at the corporations themselves, there are some troubling stats when it comes to women who are holding the CEO job. Uh, we, we crunched the Bloomberg data around Canada's benchmark stock index, the TSX. Mm-hmm. So these are the largest, most influential companies that are publicly traded in the country. And Carol, we found one woman in the top 100 yeah. uh, that is running a publicly Makes traded company. It's Nancy Southern. She runs a, a utility yeah. company in Calgary, Alberta, right now. We looked at the number of women who are chairing boards of directors of those public companies. In that same group of 100, there were six women currently. There are 15 boards of directors that have just one woman on the board, and we're talking in some cases fairly large boards. There was one company in that top 100 that had no women on its board. It's a, it's a cannabis company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people are getting excited up here in Canada about cannabis. Well, right now it's a male-dominated industry. So these, for the corporate governance experts that we showed this data to, saw this as, as troubling data. And, and one of the challenges that we, we see is, well, there are some people who say, look, the best person should get the CEO job. I, I think we all agree, and, right. and shareholders vote for that. The problem has been when you don't have a, playing, uh, a level playing field to begin with, right. you can't even have that conversation. One of the, one of the challenges we have here in, in Canada is last year, for example, when there were new board seats available, mm-hmm. 75% of those board seats went to men. And currently, when yeah. you look at every publicly traded company in Canada, for example, 14% of those he- seats are held by women. You know, so you can't even start to have a conversation <laughs> until you have a right. more level playing field. John, I don't know if, you know, I do this with my husband. I don't know if your wife does it, but I get on my soapbox and I'm like, I am so tired of talking about this. I feel like we've been talking about this for at least a decade, if not longer. And, yeah. and there's so much talk about we've got to do better. And yet, you know, <laughs> there's no actions on it. Yeah. I know part of the problem is too, and I've heard this and I think this is fair, that you've got to improve the pipeline of women getting into executive positions so that they can move up the ladder in corporate America so that they can get to the senior executive positions so that they can then be put on boards. I mean, I understand that there's a process, but um, I don't know. What, what are, what are sure. Canadian companies thinking about how to improve it rather than just talking about it? How do you and- fix it? Absolutely, and those are great points, and I don't want to take away from all the companies that have made gender equality a priority for Mm -hmm. their businesses overall, but to your point, it's 2018. We're still talking about some relatively low numbers of women who are holding that top job, so what's going on? Um, And and I have to say, I I, I get it. You're talking about it at home. I have two daughters. Uh, When they went to school in California, where we used to live, there were posters of Marissa Meyer when she was the CEO of Yahoo. (laughs) That's a great inspirational thing. Right. For, uh, for young women to see. We don't see enough of that. Uh, yes, the pipeline is an important part of the story. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the challenge for uh, uh, trying to fill all these board positions, mm-hmm. which, which is now a pr- priority for boards of directors, does that force women to choose between 
being a professional board member and being a top-level executive, which in, as part of our reporting, we talked to some young, talented female leaders who said, look, I've only got so much time in the day. Like any CEO right. or potential CEO, I can be on a few boards and I can be running a company. But at a certain point, I have to make that decision. But the numbers in Canada show that most small, successful businesses are run by women. So there's no leadership gap. It's that question of how do you get more people well, to that top position? We certainly need to see it. Right. I think, the, the, you know, it, it is great. You talked in your newscast about PepsiCo coming out with quarterly results. Yeah. Here's Indra yeah. Nui, well into her term as CEO, doing a great job. You've got Ginny Rometty, who's been running IBM. You've got Mary I know, Barr, but John, John, this yeah. is what we do. We count them on one hand. Yeah, well, like, I, I want it to be where there doesn't have to be a poster no, because a woman CEO is commonplace. Well, <laughs> I, I told you I was going to get on my soapbox. Sorry. Well, no. So it's... So, so it becomes a question of how yeah. does it change? Do you do you do you focus on the board making the change? Is it that companies' customers are looking at the dynamics or of the investors? Company? Right, like you put this in or your story. Investors, I'm so glad you brought it up because that's been the key driver. In fact, that's arguably the most influential yeah. change that we have seen on both sides of the border, Canada and the U.S. You are seeing large investors right. representing um, I love this. exchange traded funds, pension funds, who are now Got changing it. the way they vote. It's good stuff. John Ehrlichman, thank you so much. John Ehrlichman, anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, joining us from Toronto on Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Ron Carson is CEO at the registered investment advisor Carson Group, $4 billion in assets under management, based in Omaha, Nebraska, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Tuesday. Wait, did I say something wrong? <laughs> I was just looking at uh, Emma, did yeah. I get that? Did I get something wrong? It's six point one billion. But what's two point one billion with no, uh, all the money being being spent Some, these days? Somewhere we got that number. So six point one billion. We like yes. to get it right. So all thank right. you for that. Um, talk to us about the environment. What do you see? Let's start broadly, macro. Broadly, macro. I mean, you know, we've got, of course, the news, China protectionism. Do you care? You know, I don't. In the end of the day, I don't think so. And you know, of course, the way President Trump communicates is through Twitter, and so we are going to see and live through um, whatever he's thinking, which is, I think, going to continue to create some volatility. But in a lot of ways, investors are becoming used to what he's got out there. But I, ultimately, the U.S. has not had a fair deal, and and I and I love it that he's you know going to push the other side. It right. could be uncomfortable in here, but I think the bigger the bigger issue is that. People have become complacent. You know, we can talk about macro issues. The fundamentals are positive. We have interest rates going up. You know, I think rates are going to continue to go up. They're slowly. probably going to go up. It's going up slowly. The market's saying there's basically a, you know, 48% chance of two more hikes. We think it's, you know, more like 70%. Um, and I think the cycle of tightening is going to continue. We saw the employment report, which was strong uh, on Friday. Another 200,000 print. Yes. And and we who had thunk at this point. We, who would have thunk it, right? Yeah. What was really encouraging about it is 
uh, you know, the rate ticked up, but ticked up not because we lost jobs, because the labor force participation actually right. increased and wage pressures aren't crazy. Right. So, you know, we think it, it's it's almost like you know, I started in this business in 1983 and I've seen a lot. And all of a sudden, things are starting to feel like they can get back to normal. You know, I love it. And, you know, people are going to go, are you crazy, Ron? Rates are starting to move up. This is healthy. It means the economy is better. We're getting back to normal. It's funny that you say that because I had a guest on. I keep quoting her, but she said, I feel like we're only two years into the cycle because we've only started to get back to normal more recently. So when people say, wait a minute, this this market, you know, move to the upside, certainly on the equity side of things, um, that it's getting old. It's been going on too long. And she's like, you know what? It's only been normal most recently. And I don't know if you subscribe to that thinking as well. Here, here's what I've learned. I hate to be bull, bull, bull. No. That's not where I'm coming no, from. No, and I, I just... I don't want to be a bull or a bear. I want to be a realist. Mm-hmm. Because realists are do well in these markets. If you're trying to pound, if you got a you know, vested interest in being bearish all the time, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. If you have a vested interest in being bullish all the time, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. What I've learned beyond a doubt is the market will do whatever it needs to do to prove the largest number of people wrong at every given moment. It always has. It always will. Investor behavior is where wealth is destroyed. People listen to and watch and read and listen to people like me, and then they go do something when, in fact, what the market does has very little to do with their success. What their behavior to that information is, is going to drive success. So people sometimes, they're focusing on the wrong thing, but, but I'm going to come back and talk macro. Yes, I think it could be argued that Really, we have just now starting to get back to normal. We don't even know what this other period was because it was unprecedented. Right. And I think the market's having a hard time figuring out now what, what? now what? Because so know, so okay, you said people, you know, maybe focusing on the wrong things. What should we be focusing on right now? What 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 market internals to you say? Okay, this tells me really what's going on. So it's not a market internal. What? What I'm Ron Carson. I should be focused on the Carson Family Index. What's my number? Figure out what, where my risk budget is. When people get slammed, whether the dot-com meltdown or even the 1987 crash, and let's come back to the financial crisis, where people got hurt was they were taking more downside risk than they realized they had, nor they were comfortable with. In a lot of cases, if you really looked at it, there was they had no business taking the level of risk they were taking if they were even conscious of it. And that's where people panicked at the bottom, never to return back into the capital markets. If remember the Fidelity Magellan Fund? Yeah. In the nineties. Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch. Yeah. When it was when it was, at the point it was the most successful mutual fund at all time. Right. Seventy eight percent of the people that owned it had lost money. The most successful mutual Isn't that fund. Because they didn't own it, they right. sold it. They didn't ever hold it for an appropriate period of time. So behavior is is a big deal. So, Ron, got about a minute, minute 20 left here. So what's your advice to investors in terms of if – I always like to ask, you know, if you have some money to commit at this point. I keep hearing that there's a lot of money on the sidelines and all yep. that good stuff. But where would you suggest? So I would – oh, first of all, if you have money sitting in money market accounts and you're afraid of this market, and we're seeing this all the time, go do short-term muni ladders right now. You can get a 2.5% yield virtually with very little market uh, volatility. Yeah. It's crazy if you got cash sitting in the bank today. It just makes absolutely no sense. 25 
two and a quarter, maybe 275 tax free. We love energy. We, we had a non-consensus view a year ago that energy is a great place to be. We still think energy is a great place to be. Emerging markets have been hit hard. I think I would start allocating right, right. some in, into the emerging markets and growth we think is the expensive piece value relative to growth is still a place that you ought to take a look, but there's no substitute for doing your own fundamental analysis and buy companies that are Buffett, you know, I'm from Omaha, buy companies at a discount <laughs> to the intrinsic value and their companies forget the stock market buy businesses and they're up and to the right over time. I was going to ask you 10 seconds left. Do you have coffee with Mr. Buffett? I've had dinner. I see him all the time. He's is uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's around Omaha a lot. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, and talking value. That's for sure. Ron Carson. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Ron Carson, chief executive officer, Carson group, 6.1 billion in assets under management based in Omaha, Nebraska in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Tuesday. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 